Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 105, Teen Speed Freaks. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, it's a new year, and since the year began, I've gone a little back to basics on my approach, or maybe you can call it getting back to something that I've been meaning to finish up for a long time, which is reviews of random Degrassi High episodes. And as I've made my way through the few that I was interested in writing about, I've come up to the season finale of the show's first season as Degrassi High, and it's the, I think, fourth season overall of the show between Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High. And this is an episode called Stressed Out. In general, it's an episode about how a number of the characters are dealing with the overwhelming stress of final exam week, including Michelle, who decides to turn to over-the-counter caffeine pills to help her keep stay awake during various all-nighters. As you can probably expect, it doesn't go well, and she has a big breakdown at one point. Now, to steal a bit from Andy Leyland, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. You're thinking of an episode of The State by the Bell, Tom. You're not thinking about Degrassi High. But this was an episode of Degrassi High, and it was an episode of Saved by the Bell. And it was an episode of Family Ties. And it was an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And it was probably an after-school special at some point, but it seemed that if you were a stressed-out, high-achieving high school student in the 1980s and the early 1990s, you eventually turned to pills and then learned a dangerous lesson about drugs. And it was one that we as young viewers saw as many times as the government anti-drug programs would ask television networks to show us, whether it was through television movies, PSAs, or primetime sitcoms. Drugs were bad, and we were going to dare to just say no. And that's what I'm going to be talking about on this episode. Specifically, I am going to be looking at that episode to Grassy High, along with those three NBC sitcom episodes that had very similar, if not the same exact plot. I'll of course look at these shows and what happens, but I'll also talk about what message or messages seem to be sent, and whether or not they're effective. And I'll do that right after this. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought 
why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Gram. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. While I'm not sure if that was the first anti-drug PSA ever produced, I'm pretty sure it was the first anti-drug PSA that I ever saw. Kids from the 1980s will remember this as the one with the dancing and singing pills. Kids from the 1990s might recognize these as lyrics to a Busta Rhymes song. This is serious. We could make you delirious. You should have a healthy fear of us. There's too much of us. It's dangerous. So dangerous. We're so dangerous. My flip mode squad is dangerous. So dangerous. We're so dangerous. My whole entire unit is dangerous. But yes, I remember watching the afternoon cartoon block and seeing those talking pills tell me that they aren't candy and that I shouldn't go into my parents' medicine cabinet and chomp on the Tylenol like they're Smarties. And then as the decade went on, I regularly saw PSAs from the Partnership for Drug-Free America, you know, like this one. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And, of course, this one. It's yours? No, I... Your mother said she found it in your closet. I don't know. One of the guys was... Must have what? Look, Dad, it's not... Where did you get it? Dad, Answer me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. And I'm not unique in my opinion here. I can't say these were effective, really. I mean, I was a pretty straight-laced rule-following kid and teenagers, but I think that would have happened with or without the president's 
Just Say No campaign or the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. There was just another for something I was going to end up wind up trying. They never stopped me from drinking when I got to the later part of high school and then in college, but they weren't very effective. And uh, honestly, in the case of something like, You alright? I learned it by watching you. Those ads kind of became a running joke. Oh, and there was that 1990s heroin-themed one, which was a sequel to Your Brain on Drugs. That was the first place I ever saw Rachel Lee Cook, you know, before um, She's All That. This is your brain. And this is heroin. This is what happens to your brain after snorting heroin. And this is what your body goes through. Wait. It's not over yet. This is what your family goes through. Your friends But I'm way ahead of where I need to be, you know, for the sake of opening a segment, I guess, which is firmly in the 1980s, and I have to be with Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. This was a campaign that had its origin in the early part of the decades and solidified around 1985, when she began making television appearances to promote her role in the war on drugs, and that role was to educate the country's children through school programs and various forms of entertainment. This included comic books, which I looked at in some form back in my 80 Years of DC Comics miniseries when I covered the new Teen Titans drug awareness issues, and of course, television episodes. I saw three of these episodes when they first ran. I admit that I didn't watch Family Ties until it was rerun in syndication. But before I laid eyes on any of those, I saw the episode of Different Strokes that centered around marijuana use and featured a special appearance by Nancy Reagan. And I also watched the episode of Punky Brewster that had Punky falling in with the cool crowd at school only to find out that they'd like to do drugs. Being a 1980s family sitcom, of course, she just says no. And I distinctly remember the episode ending with footage of Selene Moonfry, who is the actress who played Punky, leading the Just Say No events in various parts of the country. And this dovetailed what I learned in, I'd say, at least the last couple of years of elementary school. So we're talking like 1986 until 1989. The kids who came up a few years after me, well, I don't know if they would have fond memories of the D.A.R.E. program, but they at least have memories of the D.A.R.E. program. But my experience was just prior to D.A.R.E., when the literature and marketing was a green and white logo with Just Say No in a circle with a line through it. It's all the same. Dare just say no. It was an all an effort to make us realize that we should resist the temptation to do drugs and we should make good choices in our lives. And shows like Different Strokes and Punky Brewster employed the very special episode tactic at least a few times throughout their runs, to some notoriety even. I'm pretty sure that the Different Strokes two-parter about sexual abuse where Gordon Jump plays the owner of a bicycle shop is the most well-known episode of that show. And I'm sure that there are a number of late Gen Xers who know exactly what you're talking about when you say the Fridge of Death episode of Punky Brewster. Those shows and the anti-drug ones, they did stick out in our minds. So we resisted the temptation to do lines of coke off the mirror of Barbie's Playhouse when we were eight? I guess? But we then became teenagers and the temptation to smoke, drink, and do drugs became all too real. Therefore, we got the occasional 
message episode of 21 Jump Street. And that's a show that is going to get its own episode or a set of episodes one day. And there were also special episodes that centered around people our age. While the Family Ties episode I'm going to talk about actually was broadcast first, I wanted to start my retrospective as it is here with Degrassi High, because out of the four, it's the only Canadian show. It's also the only show not filmed in front of a live studio audience, and it did not air on NBC. I'm not going to go into great detail about Degrassi and my history as a fan of the show because in a couple of months I'm going to finish my look at the show with an episode about the two-hour television movie finale, which was called Schools Out. But to establish at least a little bit of context, Degrassi was a teen drama show produced in Canada and set in a high school in Toronto that depicted teenagers of the era dealing with some serious and sometimes not-so-serious problems. If you were a fan in the United States, it's likely you saw it via two different avenues. You were shown some episodes in your health class, or it aired on your local PBS station. What sets Degrassi High apart in my mind, especially among the shows I'm talking about here, is that it is not a show that is required to follow the problem-solution-happy-ending type of plot that a lot of American family sitcoms followed. And that's a formula that goes back to the beginning of the family sitcom, back through the Brady Bunch, back through Leave it to Beaver, maybe even Father's Knows Best and some of the other uh, sitcoms that I haven't really seen very many episodes of. Yeah, there were episodes of Degrassi that had a happy ending, or maybe even a pat ending, but there were also a number of episodes that ended with something hanging in the air. The show certainly had its lessons. That's why it wound up in health classrooms in the United States. But it still tried to be realistic at least in a way that it portrayed the average late 80s teenager and also sent a message at the same time. Stressed Out is the episode here, and whereas all our shows on this podcast episode have only one storyline, this one manages to jam three into what is essentially half an hour. The main one involves Caitlin getting upset that her favorite teacher, Mrs. Avery, isn't coming back the following year, but the other two are more directly about the stress of final exams. The one played more for laughs is Snake, Joeing, and Wheels, stressing their exams to the point where Snake thinks that he's coming down with a cold and Joey worries that he's going to have to take the ninth grade again. The one that's played more serious is the caffeine pills I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Michelle, who is played by Maureen McKay, is a character that spends much of the two seasons of Degrassi High going through a story arc that's pretty tumultuous as far as those of us who are living very ordinary, pretty boring lives in the suburbs are concerned. Her parents get divorced. She got so fed up with her father that she moved out of the house. And at this point, she was working nights and even some early mornings at a donut shop, like a Dunkin' Donuts. 
After this episode, living on her own will become a lot tougher. She'll have her relationship end, and the fact that her boyfriend, BLT, is black caused tension between her and her dad because her dad was racist. But right now, BLT and Michelle are still together, and while mentioning that she had been pulling all-nighters, he sees that she's been taking caffeine pills called Perk-Ups. Yeah, I know. And there's even a scene in the library where she goes from being mildly irritated to having like a psychotic break where she screams at BLT and throws books at him right before she passes out. Ready for the geography exam? It's in five minutes. Five minutes? Oh no, it's awful. I lost track of time. I'm not ready. I'll blow it. I know I'll blow it. Calm down. Why should I calm down? Why are you always telling me what to do? You're worse than my dad, you know that? Everything's going wrong! Hey, relax. Don't relax! What's going on? Why don't you leave me alone? Why don't you stop bugging me? Michelle, stop it! You stop it! You stop it! Michelle? 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 Somebody get the nurse! Michelle? Is she okay? Michelle, wake up. Michelle, what's wrong with her? Honestly, that's really it. It's like a C-plot of the episode, and it could have been done without the pills because Michelle was just burning herself out, uh, and and her busyness and, and the amount of uh, that she had to do to kind of keep everything together was already an established character point. But I guess they needed to show a quick symbol of how much she had been doing because she doesn't have much screen time beyond this. And the episode does never leave the confines of the school, so we don't see her at work, we don't see her at home, etc. So we have no idea if she got help, what her father had to say, if her mother was involved, if it affected any other aspect of her life. And it's funny, because I went into my rewatch of this episode thinking it was a bigger part of the episode. Like it was going to be, like I was going to set this up as the antithesis of the Saved by the Bell episode. I mean, it's certainly more realistic than the Saved by the Bell episode to the point where you have A, a cast that is diver- diverse in look and like to the point where they have kind of normal fashion sense or even in some cases bad fashion sense and in some cases pretty visible acne but it's also really simplistic in its approach it's melodramatic in its outcome I suppose it's less about potential drug addiction and more about finding healthier ways around the stress of school. And when it comes to that, the Degrassi High episode actually does a pretty good job. Michelle's burning the candle at both ends and she's exhausting herself, so the caffeine pills become just another way for her to push herself forward. Even if we do get the, you shouldn't do drugs even if you are stressed out message. But Degrassi High still gets points here because it remembers that the stress is the focus of the episode, which is something that gets pretty easily lost in the writing of the other shows, or at least how we all remember them. Now, my next episode of Degrassi High on the blog will be the one from the final season called The All-Nighter. But the next show that I'm going to cover on this podcast episode is going to be Family Ties, which is the first of three NBC sitcoms I'll be talking about. So I'm going to play a trailer, and when I come back, I'm going to have Speed Trap, a very special episode of Family Ties. Stick around. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel?
What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. For a million years And I bet we'll be together For a million more Oh, it's like I started breathing On the night we kissed And I can't remember What I ever did before What would we do, baby Without us What would we do, baby The Family Ties episode Speed Trap aired on November 9th, 1983, and it was the sixth episode of the show's second season. The show itself was a mainstay of NBC's sitcom lineup from its premiere in 1982 until its final episode in 1989. At its peak, Family Ties was the number two series on television, and that peak coincided with the rise and stardom of Michael J. Fox, who played Alex P. Keaton, the conservative young Republican son of former hippies and stead liberals Stephen and Elise Keaton, who were played by Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter, who at that time, by the way, was credited as Meredith Baxter Bernie. That was the premise of the show, that these two hippies from the 60s were raising three kids, two of whom were teenagers who had become very much a part of the conservative and materialistic 80s. Alex, as I mentioned, was a staunch Reagan Republican, and daughter Mallory, who is played by Justine Bateman, was a consumerist material girl, to steal a line from Madonna. Tina Yothers played Jennifer, the younger sister of both of whom, who at the time of this episode aired was still portrayed as the uh, tomboyish kid sister. Um, it's been quite a long time since I've watched the more than just an episode of the show, but I do remember that even though she kind of glammed up in the later seasons when she became a teenager herself, uh, Jennifer's views and lifestyle tended to fall more in line with her parents than with her siblings. The plot of this episode here centers around Alex, who is facing midterms of his senior year of high school as well as a test for a big local scholarship. And because he is facing an enormous amount of pressure, he winds up taking speed to get through it. The results are similar to what we'll see in the episodes I'm looking at. At first, he's reaping the benefits, but with the high comes a crushing low, and he finds himself getting hooked. Steven is eventually the one to get him back to normal. Out of the three NBC shows, I chose this one as the first to look at because, well, obviously it's the first one chronologically, and unless I'm missing something, it might be the first time this was tackled on a primetime sitcom. Saved by the Bell and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air would air their speed episodes in the early 90s, and they're definitely taking from this template. A star student deals with overwhelming pressure by making a bad choice, and there are circumstances they have to face. Here, Alex is putting the pressure on himself and gets Mallory's help by getting her friend Effie to give him her diet pills. 
This is done at the service of a rather outdated fat joke. The unseen Effie is 300 pounds. And Mallory is reluctant to give him the pills until Alex pressures her into it. The effects are played for laughs at first, as Alex has an enormous amount of energy and is doing all sorts of manual labor because he's tweaking on the speed. At one point, a neighbor calls the Keatons to thank Alex for breaking into her garage and cleaning it out. There you go. But we get the moments where the seriousness kicks in, and there are two very well-placed and well-acted scenes. First, as Alex runs out of pills and is clearly coming off as high, he becomes increasingly irritable, and when Mallory refuses to give him a new bottle of pills that she procured for him, he grabs her purse, rifles through it, and takes them right in front of her. She gets rightfully pissed off because it's a major breach of trust. Then that night, Alex is up at 3.30 in the morning. When Stephen comes into his room and seeing how he's up and about to start painting his walls, again, leaning into the silliness of the mania for sitcom laughs, Stephen pieces together that Alex has been taking amphetamines. Not only that, he asks him about it directly, and he says he knows exactly what is going on because he did it himself in college once. Now, Alex tries to point out the hypocrisy of this, but Stephen, what Stephen does is say, he basically says, I have to be the father here, or I have to be the parent here, which is a great way to portray this moment, and it's, it's a great line to write, too. But that's not the end, because while Stephen did get Alex to throw his pills in the garbage, Alex oversleeps his scholarship test the next morning, and when Stephen and Elise wake him up, he freaks, and he dives right for the garbage can. Stephen grabs him, he tells him it's over. And behind them is standing Elise, shocked, not knowing what to do with herself. Alex! 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 Alex, wake up! You're late for your No! Kids. No! Effie! Alex. Effie! No! You're back! <laughs> what? Dad, what time is it? It's 20 after 8. The test! It's already started, Alex. We thought you'd gone an hour ago. Uh, I overslept. I can't believe it. I gotta get going. <laughs> Did I fall down? I think. Look, I think you can forget the test. I gotta get going. The door. Where's the door? Where am I? Where am I? There's gotta be somewhere. The garbage. Alex, Alex, stop it! Stop it! It's over. It's over. It's a moment that could be very special episode terrible if the actors involved didn't perform it as well as they did. Michael J. Fox has three Emmys and a Golden Globe for Family Ties, and those accolades are earned by episodes like this. There's a moment after Stephen has stopped him completely where he is sitting against his desk saying he never oversleeps. And as he's doing, he's kind of like hitting the back of his head on his desk a couple of times just out of frustration, saying he's blown his chance. It's 
it's that moment that I found incredibly relatable. You know, I was the Alex Keaton type of student. I mean, I was not as much of a fan of Richard Nixon as Alex is, but I know what it's like to be the perfectionist who puts too much pressure on himself. And like I said, with the exception of a few primetime episodes here and there, I watched Family Ties mostly in reruns, and even then could tell you way more about Growing Pains, which is kind of ABC's version of the show. The Keatons, for me, were a little too wholesome at times. Although I have to say I absolutely love the set of Family Ties. I mean, it really looks like one of the houses I would have spent time in in the 80s among my friends. But despite that overwhelming wholesomeness, I can see how smartly they were written. Steven's admission that he knows what amphetamines are and how straightforward he addresses it shows a father who isn't a complete doofus or isn't going to swoop in with some sort of pat statement that gets you the lesson of the episode in the way that, say, Ward Cleaver or Mike Brady would do. Furthermore, Michael Gross plays him with such ease. Alex could have been very cartoonish in his overachievement, and from what I remember went there from time to time, but like I said earlier, I saw a perfectionist who was at a breaking point and honestly believes that if he doesn't get exactly what he wants, his life is going to be a catastrophe from this point on. And this is the heart of the message, not that drugs are bad, because they are, but you know, not just that, but the desperation that's produced by the pressure that we put on ourselves and what that can drive us to do. And that's actually also the message of the next episode I'm looking at, which is Jesse's song. That's season three, episode nine of Saved by the Bell. When I wake up in the morning and the lawn gets out of water, I don't think I'll ever make it on time. By the time I grab my books and I give myself a look, I'm at the corner just in time to see the bus fly by. It's all right, cause I'm saved by the bell. If the teacher pops a test, I know I'm in a mess And my dog ate all my homework last night Riding low on my chair, she won't know that I'm there If I can hand it in tomorrow, it'll be alright It's alright, cause I'm saved by the bell This is probably the most notorious episode of Saved by the Bell, and more than likely the most famous. I'd say it's probably the most well-known of the four episodes I'm actually looking at, too. Yeah, the Fresh Prince episode probably challenges it, but even that episode pales in comparison to the very special episode with Ben Vereen playing Will's dad. But I'll get to the Fresh Prince later. For now... Let's talk Saved by the Bell. Now, you can go back to the early days of my show. I think it's like episode 8 to hear me talk about Saved by the Bell and even a little about this episode. Of course, this is the episode where Jesse Spano, who's played by Elizabeth Berkeley, who's been struggling in geometry and dreams to go to Stanford, starts taking caffeine pills to help her stay awake for her tests. Simultaneously, she is roped into becoming part of Hot Sunday, a singing group that Zach forms because he wants to make money. That may sound utterly ridiculous. And it is utterly ridiculous. 
while there is a very real Jesse's under pressure and is doing something dangerous here story, and I will address the whole caffeine pill situation later, Saved by the Bell was still a live-action Saturday morning cartoon. So it needed its fair share of silly gags and outlandish stories. And while they would tone down a lot of Zack's scheming in later episodes, this was still the time when the writers and producers saw him as a Ferris Bueller type of character. As a result, we have this storyline where he sends Screech into the girls' locker room to invade their privacy so he can get them to sing a Pointer Sisters song. And then he shoots an odd aerobics-themed music video. I mean, my friends and I did that all the time, so, you know, there you go. But let's set the ridiculous stuff in the episode aside for a moment and address what makes the episode more realistic than any episode of Saved by the Bell has any right to be. When the show opens, we see Jessie at the max cramming for her geometry test and shotgunning sugared-up coffee. Later, when Slater helps her study at her house, he's exhausted. This, of course, leads to a confrontation that is similar to the one that BLT has with Michelle in the Degrassi episode, where Slater gets mad at her for taking them, although when he tells Zack, that douchebag blows him off. Anyway, similar to the way Alex acts on family ties, Jessie is full of energy and it leads to her acting completely manic at the geometry test and eventually, well... We get the scene. Jesse? Jesse? Hey, wake up. Come on, we gotta go to the max. Come on, Jesse. Come on. Zach. What time is it? I have to take my geometry test. Why, you already took the test. I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's 6.30. Come on, we gotta go. Let's go. Where are we going? Where are we going? You're singing tonight. Singing? Yeah. Tonight? Come on. Wait, what am I gonna wear? Jesse, remember? Lisa's bringing your costume. Right, I gotta wash my hair. No, there's no time. No time! There's never any time! I don't have time to study! I'll never get into Stanford! I'll let everyone down! I'm so confused! Jesse, hey! Hey, just calm down. It's okay. You're right. It's okay. Everything will be okay. Yeah. I just need one of these. Pills? You mean you really are taking drugs? I need them. Jesse, give me those. I need them, Zach. I have to sing. Jesse, you can't sing tonight. Yes, I can. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Jesse, Jesse. Jesse. Hey, don't be scared. Listen, we'll get through this. Hey, come on. Remember that time when we, when we snuck out to CET? Riding home on our bikes? It was so dark. And we were scared. But to keep us in Saturday morning land, there's also a scene where she has a nightmare about having to attend Surf U instead of Sanford. Although I, even that clicked with me. When you're an A student, and an ambitious A student, Stanford is one of the most competitive schools in the country as far as admissions is concerned, by the way, and you hit a roadblock like a very tough class, that roadblock had become all-consuming. Part of that stems from your want to be successful, but also part of it stems from expectations and pressure that you either put on yourself or others put on you. 
Jesse is lucky to have supportive friends, although if you've seen the episode of Zach Morris's Trash about Jesse's song, you know that not all of her friends are supportive when they should be. But not everybody has one supportive friend. Some people have friends who would blow off or ignore their anxiety and concerns because, quote, you always get good grades. Furthermore, sometimes the anxiety of your grades can lead to paranoia that there are people out there who are waiting for you to fail. I mean, it's completely irrational, but you wind up with this visceral reaction to any situation where you have the slightest chance of appearing stupid in any way, especially in public and especially in front of other people. If you can't tell, I'm speaking from experience. And I can empathize to some degree with Jesse's anxiety and her feelings of desperation. In hindsight, it's one geometry test, but in the moment, it is the imperfection, and it is therefore everything. Slater needs to go home because he's been helping her at her house for hours, but there's always another hour to study. There's always another chance to figure it out, and if you don't do as well as you needed to, you spend your time replaying all the things you could have done or should have done that didn't get you where you needed to go. I never turned to pills, But I do remember those feelings of desperation. I do remember beating myself up because I fell short. Shit, there were times when I flat out wished I was a C student. Just so I didn't have to have the stress of maintaining a high GPA. And that brings us to the scene. Now, I should note that the pills are what bring us to the scene. And the fact that Jesse was hooked on basically no-dos is a ridiculous premise. However, in my research for this episode, I learned that what wound up being caffeine pills was actually originally written as amphetamines, but the network stepped in and said that speed was too hardcore for Saturday mornings. That sounds overly cautious, yes, but remember, this is 1990. NBC's Saturday morning lineup at this point was still mostly kitty-oriented stuff, except for Saved by the Bell. And the show that came on after it, which was some boy band sketch show called Guys Next Door. In fact, the other networks were also still running cartoons, and it would be uh, maybe a couple years later where TNBC would take over the programming entirely. So the network's cautiousness has a rational or at least logical feel to it. According to Peter Engel, who created and produced Saved by the Bell, after the network interfered, they rewrote all the references to speed as just simply references to caffeine pills. So they basically did a search and replace of the script, and they kept the rest of the script intact. So that's why Jesse has an Alex P. Keaton type of breakdown moment at the end. Now, while I'm so excited, I'm so scared, is the line that launched a thousand jokes, mostly mine. To me, the best part of the scene is prior to that, when she flips out and says, Time? There's never any time. This is the moment that I think is the most realistic out of the entire scene. Because we've all flipped out like this. Or at least we've had an internal Jesse Spano moment where there's so much hanging over our heads and it seems that the only way to fix it is to completely change the space-time continuum to add another hour to the day. So I give the show points for that and for using Jesse, who is the only character for which this would have worked. Zach's too much of a douche. Slater, I could kind of see if you have to throw in like the athletic performance aspect to it but even then you could get some sort of 
Penhall on steroids from that 21 Jump Street episode, Screech would have to do a complete character turn in order for this to work. And I don't... They always portrayed Lisa as too vapid and Kelly as too kind of just like perky and cheery. So if you were going to do this with some of the other characters, there'd have to be... You know, there'd have to be something else to them that's that's making them them do this. Simply wanting to get an A on a test because you're a perfectionist really applies to Jesse Spano. And look, it's not quality television. It's not even quality teen television by any means. But I've bagged on the episode enough times in my life that I feel that I needed to take some time to point out what it actually does seem to get right. And it's just that little bit of showing the kind of hazards of perfectionism and the lengths will go to kind of fix the situation that that it does. And that brings us to the final episode I want to cover, and that's Season 3, Episode 19 of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Just Say Yo! Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood I got in one little fight and my mom got scared and said you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel-Air I whistled for a cab and when it came near the license plate said freshen it and dice in the mirror If anything I can say that this cab was rare but I thought man forget it, yo home's the Bel-Air I pulled up to the house about seven or eight And I yelled to the cabbie, yo home, smell you later Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there To sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air Of all the episodes, this one aired last in 1993 And I should pause to say that uh, the Degrassi episode and the Saved by the Bell episode both aired in 1990 Stressed Out came on February 13th And Jesse's song aired on November 3rd Most people are familiar with the premise of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air And if you aren't, you would have picked it up by listening to the theme song a few moments ago A theme song that, by the way, is written by Will Smith And was hip for the time, but is awesome because even though it is hip and cool and a rap song it's a total sherwood schwartz theme song you know where you get the story of the show in the opening anyway at the time this episode aired fresh prince was a top 20 show it finished 16th for the season it drew an average of 14.6 million viewers the number one show in the country that year at 21.9 million average viewers by the way 60 minutes on cbs Roseanne uh, was the highest rated fictional show. That was at number two. And this uh, uh, 1982-93 television season marked a time where we were in this period of transition, especially for NBC. The Cosby Show, which had been its mainstay, number one sitcom, went off the air the year prior. Uh, This particular season was the final season for Cheers. And... Seinfeld had been airing on Wednesdays and would eventually move to Thursdays. And then the following year, we'd get the lineup of Mad About You, Wings, Seinfeld, and Frasier, which were more um, uh, 
adult comedies rather than, say, family sitcoms. Fresh Prince would air for three more seasons. It would stay on Mondays, often paired with Blossom and other shows like that. This show was definitely a formulaic family sitcom. For as cool as Will Smith appeared, and as much of a sheen of coolness that it had, it was a family show. You had the fish out of water and the Philly kid Will Smith living with the wealthy Banks family. Um, They were kind of a little bit from the Huxtable mold, but just they had more money. They had a bigger house. They were on the West Coast. And honestly, I mean, if you look at the show on paper, it's completely forgettable. It's just like every other show like this. But you have Will Smith. You have his co-stars. They made the show what it was. And this episode, which also involves the dangers of speed, has a character OD on the pills in a scenario that by now we're kind of used to if we've watched three episodes already about this. So we have the prom coming up. Will is exhausted. He's got no time to do anything else because he spends much of the episode. He's been studying hard. He's got basketball season. He's got his girlfriend. He's got all this. He's got his job. He's got his girlfriend. So basically, he spends much of the first half of the episode yawning. Uncle Phil tells him to slow down. Carlton tells him he's pushing himself too hard. Hillary and Ashley have like two scenes, including the cold open, which has nothing to do with the uh, rest of the episode. Anyway, things get complicated when a classmate offers Will some speed, which he accepts, but he does not take. Instead, he puts the bottles of pills in his locker. Meanwhile, Carlton is so hyped for the prom that he's broken out with a huge zit. He's worried that it will ruin his chance of losing his virginity on prom night. He freaks out and stresses about the pimple constantly, and he goes searching for vitamin E pills. The two stories, Will's stress and exhaustion and Carlton's pimple, converge at the prom. The prom, for some reason, for a rich private school in in Bel Air, is held in the high school gym, it looks like, for plot convenience, I guess. But anyway, at the prom... Will pretty much dozes off the entire time. His girlfriend gets all pissed at him. And then Carlton, who's freaking out over the zits, comes up and asks him if he has any vitamin E. And Will is so exhausted, he's like, yeah, check my locker. You know, just kind of dismissively. Carlton opens up the locker. He finds the bottle of of pills. He doesn't check what it is, thinking that they're vitamin E pills. Swallows a handful of them. And we find out later that it's 2,000 milligrams of amphetamines. And then he zips around the dance floor doing the running man until he collapses. He has his stomach pumped. And Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv are extremely grateful to Will because Will's the one who called 911. And he essentially saved Carlton's life. This continues when they get home, but when Uncle Phil gives Will a thank you gift of season tickets to the Clippers, Will can't take it anymore, and he confesses that the pills were his. You talking to me? You know, I have something for you. I was going to save it for graduation, but after what you did, I think I'll give it to you now. Yo, season tickets to the Clippers! That's right, courtside. <laughs> I can't take this, Uncle Phil. Um, there's something I need to tell you. What is it? Those pills that Carlton took, um, they were from my locker. What? Look, Uncle Phil, I was just keeping them in case I needed them. How could you be so stupid? 
You know you shouldn't be messing with drugs. Look, I know, Uncle Phil. I mean, somebody gave them to me at school. I mean, I didn't mean for Carlton to take them. I, I didn't even know if I was going to take them. I'm sorry, Uncle Phil. Sorry? My son could have died because of you. Look, I know, Uncle Phil. That's all I've been thinking about. I mean, look, you got to believe me. I didn't mean to hurt him. Yeah, well, you did. You hurt him and you could have hurt yourself. I know, Uncle Phil. I mean, but look, I had basketball practice and, and school, and I was at work and everything. Oh, oh, welcome to the real world, Will. That's not an excuse. It's never an excuse. You owe this family an apology. Vivian, kids! What's going on? Will has something to tell you. Well, Uncle Phil, don't make Go ahead, me. Will. Um... The pills they, that Carlton took, they were from my locker. What? I'm sorry, Aunt Viv. I mean, I, I had basketball practice and I had finals and everything. And one of the guys at school just offered me some stuff to help me stay awake. And then Carlton. Look, all I know is that somebody real close to me that I love a whole lot could be dead right now. And it would be all my fault. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Come here, come here. I'm sorry, George. It's okay. Now, this is an episode that I actually saw when it first ran. My Monday night TV watching at the time would have been this, followed maybe by Blossom and maybe by Murphy Brown over on CBS. And I distinctly remember the back half of the episode, you know, with Carlton's OD and Wills having to admit his guilt in the situation. Upon watching this nearly 27 years later, I'm actually struck by how very 80s, very special episode this actually is. I mean, I never expected Fresh Prince to be a cutting-edge show, but I always remember it as being cooler than the average family sitcom. This could have been a different Strokes episode, with Willis being Will. And like I said earlier, it's the actors who make this any better than it has any right to be. By the way, in case you need to know, it's a first Aunt Viv episode, but it's a late first Aunt Viv episode, so this is around the time where she's, I think she's got like two episodes left on the entire show. It's toward the end of the season and then she gets replaced coming into the next season so that's just to provide context here because when you're talking um fresh prince there's first aunt viv and there's second aunt viv anyway a few things did stand out at me as i was watching first while will is definitely shown as wrong for what he did he never actually takes the drugs all of our other protagonists take the drugs the cynical side of me says that showing Will taking drugs would have made the show's star look bad, and Will Smith has an image to maintain. But the side of me that wants to give Will Smith the benefit of the doubt they want, says that they actually wanted to show the unintended consequences of having drugs. So Carlton takes pills that aren't his, and it's one of a number of lessons that we were all taught in the anti-drug lesson years. The result, of course, is a lot of running man followed by his collapse and hospitalization. 
But then there's the scene where Will confesses to Uncle Phil. And again, he was only so dishonest. He and Carlton make peace at the hospital, and Carlton just covers for him. Will doesn't ask him to cover for him. He just goes along with that. It's when Uncle Phil lavishes praise on Will that gets him so upset he decides he can't keep up the facade. And it's James Avery who really sells this scene at the end because he plays Uncle Phil in a way that is completely against the Danny Tanner type of sitcom dad. When Will starts going on about his problems, Phil reminds him that he's in the real world. He calls everyone else into the room and he makes Will confess like right to the whole family. Smith's tearful, it's done completely without any music or audience reaction so that we get the full like gravity and dramatic effect here. I mean, it does end with a hug because, um, you know, as gruff as he could be, the, the character of Uncle Phil was shown to, you know, love this kid. So you have that, which is a very family sitcom ending. Family sitcoms ended with hugs all the time. And I'm not going to say that I'm disappointed in the episode because Smith is good and James Avery, I mean, James Avery is outstanding in the show's run and he's, and, and, you know, he's, he is a late, very missed actor. But it, in watching it, it felt like there was a scene missing. It, it's a lot thinner than I thought it was. We got to all the important points of the show, but it seemed like it went quicker than what I remember from back in 1993. Like, all of a sudden, we were at the prom and, and Carlton was ODing. I'm like, wasn't there a lot more to this? And I, I do remember uh, remember the dramatic way the last scene was shot, right down to the fact that Will got season tickets to the Clippers. Um, I remember watching it back in 1993 and wondering why he would want season tickets to the Clippers and not the Lakers. And then tried to no prize it, thinking that maybe Phil was cheap or something. I don't know. Or maybe Clip being a Clippers fan was like cooler than being a Lakers fan at the time. I, I honestly have no idea. And these are the things I think about when watching a show like this. You know, when I'm probably supposed to be thinking about like how I should not do speed, which renders the message of the show ineffective in a way. Like, why Clippers tickets? All right, let's face it. The message of all these shows was largely ineffective anyway. At best, Just Say No and Dare's effectiveness is debatable. At worst, they were part of the larger war on drugs that has only been really successful at aiding the for-profit prison system and the disproportionate penalties and incarceration of people of color, especially African-American men. I'm not sure that anyone looked at any of these episodes and put down the bottle of speed, and at that point, I think that most of us just kind of shake our heads and laugh at them even now. But I do have to say that all four of these shows do give us a good illustration of an underlying issue, even though it's unfortunate that this is the issue they don't focus on, which is anxiety and overall mental health. Yes, the drug of choice here is amphetamines, and I think that's because it was a good go-to drug to demonize back in the 80s and early 90s. It was nicknamed Speed. When you took health class, you heard about them being uppers. In the case of Alex P. Keaton, they were someone else's diet pills. And the practice of prescribing amphetamines for dieting has been around since the 30s. So the audience of Family Ties would have, been, would have found the methods by which Alex gets the pills to be realistic, if not logical. Will's classmate, by the way, just has them. He urges them to take them like some sort of half-assed rich boy pusher. I don't think there's anything beyond that. It's not like he has to go out of his way to get them and they're pushed on him and he just kind of reluctantly takes them you know just in case 
At any rate, the point I'm making here is that pill-popping had a stigma. Taking prescription drugs that aren't yours was just as dangerous as smoking a joint. But then you had the 90s. And more importantly, with the 90s comes stuff like Ritalin and Adderall. And as you get into the early 2000s, you get shows like MTV's True Life, which actually did an episode about teenagers who were taking Adderall in 2004, showing how it has effects similar to that of amphetamines. And combined with the growing pervasiveness of anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications like Prozac and, and Zoloft, which were outwardly advertised because the FDA loosened advertising regulations in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, remember the, the Zoloft rock commercial, the animated one? Because of all this, teenagers didn't necessarily need to do illegal drugs. They just could do the legal ones prescribed to them or to their parents. So at the root of this, perhaps, was anxiety, especially among high-achieving students. And in recent years, it's actually gotten more attention. A Pew Research Center poll of American teenagers conducted in 2018 found, them, found that 70% of them see anxiety as a major problem among their peers. Furthermore, it was at the top of that list, outranking bullying, drug addiction, drinking, poverty, teen pregnancy, and gangs. According to the study, this concern cuts across gender, racial, and socioeconomic lines, which is extremely important because, and this is conjecture on my part, we tend to parse problems like this as being only those that affect uh, suburban white people or inner-city poor black kids, depending on what the problem is. Breaking the data down further, the study says that academics is the top pressure according to the respondents, with 61% of teens saying that they feel pressure to get good grades, double the percentage of respondents who feel that social pressure is the most major problem. And this pressure is tied to goals beyond high school, which, which includes wanting to get into a good college. An NEA Today article that reported the, on the results and was updated in March 2019 elaborates on this, quoting Kathy Remy, a school counselor at La Plata High School in Southern Maryland. She says, Honestly, I've had more students this year hospitalized for anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues than ever. There's just so much going on in this day and age. The pressures to fit in, the pressure to achieve, the pressure of social media. And then you couple that with the fact that kids can't even feel safe in their schools. They worry genuinely about getting shot. And it all makes so much har it's so much harder to be a teenager. What this has done has led to a call for more attention to student mental health. In my state, which is Virginia... Students from the Charlottesville area helped draft a bill that was passed last year and signed by the governor that will implement mental health education for 9th and 10th grade students. The idea behind this is twofold. First, you remove the stigma of mental health problems such as anxiety and depression. And second, you help provide resources for students who deal with these problems. One of the students who helped develop the law, Alexander Moreno, was quoted in the Washington Post as saying, we know how private and how difficult it can be to deal with a mental illness, and we know that people are not going to always want to talk about what they're going through, but we do want to make it okay for people who are going through something to go and seek out resources. Remy, in the NEA Today article, says that she does work with students to practice mindfulness through techniques that are geared toward wellness and help steer them away from self-medicating through drugs and alcohol. 
but it can be difficult, especially considering that there is often a lack of resources as well as a lack of willingness to engage on the part of students. Schools often do not have enough counselors, with the ones who do work there having hundreds of students on their caseloads, and that means that students who are having problems can often fall through the cracks. The Virginia law is a sound one, but even that has issues when it comes to implementation. As I've seen scripted curricula that is weak as anything in places, or it gets ignored by the students is actually designed to help. After all, we're talking about teenagers. They're ordinary. And a lot of them don't see value in learning something that, I don't know, might not have a grade attached to it. Moreno got to the heart of the problem with these te- that these television episodes addressed when he said, the problem isn't that students are doing too much. The problem is that students are doing too much and they don't have individuals in place that can help them deal with the stress and anxiety that come from that. A bad day turns into a bad week, turns into a bad month. It's that snowball effect scene when Jesse says there isn't any time and list all of the things she won't accomplish. It's Alex and Will trying to just power through all the things on their plate and those around them not being stronger in their intervention until something serious occurs. It's Michelle feeling that she has to do everything because she's purposely on her own now and is driving herself to exhaustion to prove that she can handle it all. Thankfully, they all have the support of the people around them because they're putting pressure on themselves and nobody's putting pressure on them. It would have actually been refreshing to see a parent or some other adult put pressure on one of these characters because very often parents do apply the pressure, either directly or indirectly. The brand name window sticker mentality when it comes to getting into college is very alive and well. And Remy in the NEA Today article says... It's so hard for the kids who are already maybe perfectionists, and they're getting the first B in their lives, and they're fretful it's going to prevent them from going to college, any college, never mind their dream college. And they don't want to disappoint their parents. On top of this, you have adults who will ignore or downplay the issue, commenting that kids today are soft or snowflakes or any number of things. I've actually seen people I went to high school with say this about kids these days, completely ignoring the irony in their statements, as if we weren't secretly struggling with stress and anxiety as teenagers, some of it undiagnosed. Then again, some of the people I see from high school saying this were total jackasses in high school, so there you go, because they could coast by and they didn't have anxiety. But really, the attention being paid to this as as an issue is one of the reasons why I look at episodes like this, as ridiculous as they can be and identify with the main characters as well as wonder what I can do for my students. Stress is up. Teenage suicide jumped 31% between 2010 and 2015. And there are myriad reasons, from academic pressure to the ubiquity of smartphones and social media. Now, no teenager in 2020 is going to learn a lesson if you show them any of these four episodes of television. At best, they might find them odd or funny in the same way that we kind of do now. The nature of their media has changed. Issues like this are dealt with with more serious and more directness in young adult literature and on television. But maybe us, as their parents and their teachers, can still learn something by considering what we have might have missed 30 years ago. Taking their concerns seriously instead of ignoring them or acting clueless around them, like our parents might have and especially helping them if and when they need it. 
that'll do it for the main part of this episode. But before I go, I do have two emails. This first one is from Robert Fithen, or Fithen, and he writes in about a blog post from 2017 about the afternoon music video show Hot, which ran in the early 80s. He says, I saw your blog in the 80s music video TV show Hot. I've been looking for info on this show for decades and was beginning to think I was the only one who remembered it. So great to see that someone else does. I've been searching for a song that used to play on the show all the time like it was a big hit. It wasn't. I never saw the video anywhere except the hot TV show. The only lyrics I remember is the ridiculous line, I look at you, you look at me, and I start pumping. I'm pretty sure it was part of the chorus. This guy is singing it standing on a staircase. No one else has ever heard of this. Do you know what song or video I'm talking about? Thanks in advance, Robert. Um, I wrote back to him to tell to tell him that I'm really glad I'm not the only person to remember Hot. <laughs> I will admit that figuring out the title of the show took some effort because for years I only remembered it as that video show that used to run on Channel 5 after school when I was in elementary school. I'm not sure this about the song. Um, I do love a challenge. If I can figure it out, I will get back in touch with him. Uh, but the lyrics do feel, sound familiar, so I feel like I should know it. And my Google foo is just failing me. So if anybody has heard of a song that has a, a line somewhere like, I look at you, you look at me, and I start pumping, and it's got a guy singing, singing on a staircase, uh, email me or, or ping me on Twitter and let me know. My other email is from Luke Giaconetti, and it's about the first episode of the miniseries Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. He says, Tom... Just wanted to drop you a quick line to say that I really enjoyed Fallen Walls Open Curtains Episode 1. Growing up in the 1980s, I have a lot of vivid memories of the Cold War and fiction, ranging from Rocky IV to Godzilla 1985 and everything in between. So when you announced this show, I knew I would have to check it out, and I have to say that it did not disappoint. I don't have specific memories of the fall of the Berlin Wall, not compared to the breakup of the Soviet Union. But I do remember discussing it in school a little bit, specifically the idea of the, quote, no man's land where defectors could easily be spotted and gunned down. Going to a Catholic primary school, this was presented as an obvious demonstration of the immorality of the wall. My family was never big on politics when I was a kid, and if I'm being honest, still aren't today. I'm the most politically aware member of my family, and frankly, I try to limit that for obvious reasons. So I don't remember discussing this with my parents or brother, but I do have some vague half-formed memories of the classic images of the wall coming down, so I must have seen some of it. As I have stated on other podcasts, my memory is spotty when it comes to a lot of things, and this is no different. So I appreciated your historical coverage and contemporary news media context. Oddly enough, over the last few years, I have personally noticed an increase in the use of the GDR in fiction, specifically film. Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies is the obvious one, telling the story of James Donovan, the attorney who negotiated the exchange which saw the return of U-2 pilot Gary Powers. But the GDR and uh, DGR, and specifically The Wall, also play a role in Guy Ritchie's underrated Man from Uncle film from 2015 as well as 2017's Atomic Blonde and an adaptation of the Oni Press comic The Coldest City. Even the 2018 reimagining slash homage of the horror classic 
Suspiria, which is originally set in Germany in 1977 but utterly apolitical, addresses the German summer from 1977 and uses the wall to express a theme of generational guilt and the strong preying upon the weak and the vulnerable. Why this resurgence in the use of the Berlin Wall? I have suspicions, but I'll keep my speculation to myself. More generally, the theme and premise of your show reminds me of one of my favorite songs from my youth, The Gap, by British pop group Thompson Twins. This pop rock tune was the title track of their off their 1984 album, Into the Gap, and it's an anthem for understanding and cooperation. The chorus especially jumps to mind. They say east is west, west is west. Two different colors on the map. We say break the line, chew the fat, keep moving out into the gap. A little early for the time frame your show focuses on, but there it lingers in my brain nevertheless. Thanks for the show. Very eager to hear the next episode, Luke. And I'm putting this email on the show here because Luke is actually going to be on the next episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, which will be covering 1950s communist paranoia comics. And that'll drop toward the end of February. But before that, you're going to get an episode that's about another era of comics, the 1990s. Yeah, I'm going back to that well again, because I have in my possession a copy of Wizard, The Guide to Comics, issue number 29. This was a huge year-end spectacular. I'm going to do a deep dive into it, going back over some well-worn territory, but seeing it's been about four years since Michael Bailey and I did our episodes about comics collecting in the 90s and Wizard, I thought it might be fun to once again reassess the decade and Wizard magazine. Until then, you can check out the blog for more stuff. I do have more Degrassi reviews coming up as I head toward the end of my look at that show. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and all of those places. And as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog.